Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited to be bringing you episode 36 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This episode was a really special one for me. I was able to interview DJ and author Emily Prado about her book of essays, Funeral for Flaca. We commiserated about growing up in predominantly white towns in the Bay Area and discuss how the book, which also has a really rad accompanying playlist, is both a mixtape and a collection of essays. And we talked about how Prado has questioned what is true and what isn't as a memoirist and how she came to feel comfortable writing about her past, but also her past as interpreted through her lens. And it was a really powerful interview. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Hello, Cachimonas. Today, I am very excited to have author and DJ Emily Prado here to discuss her book of essays, Funeral for Flaca. Before we get into it, I just wanted to thank you, Emily, so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to chat. Funeral for Flecka is both a mixtape and a collection of essays. What made you want to meld both mediums into one project? Yeah, so the original essay that really spawned the collection being organized around music is the essay Keep Your Head Up, which is a tribute to the song by Tupac and Tupac and all his flaws as like a real human outside of just music was a source of strength for me when I was a teenager. And in that particular essay, I write about the impact that that song had on me during a time when I was really depressed and eventually found out that I was actually diagnosed with depression. And when it came to figuring out what this collection of essays that I had been working on during my time as a student at the Independent Publishing Resource Center, I talked to my mentor and was like, I can't think of any other title besides this essay right now, and I'm not sure how to organize these. And she actually suggested that I continue with the theme um, as a nod. She knew that I was a DJ and that I loved music, and that was really helpful because then it gave me kind of like the green light. And I've always loved when I read books that had song titles as the chapters. It always felt like another nugget or like an added bonus to the reading. And so I was really excited to be able to do that in my own collection. And like I mentioned before, it had originally started out as a class project. So I didn't really have any expectations beyond it just being a part of my graduation requirements for this certificate. And as I went through the process of getting it published with Future Tense books, that was something that we still kept. And I was really happy that I was able to do that and then add the additional component of a playlist on Spotify that people can listen to in addition to being able to see the tracks. Yeah, I feel like having the playlist as an accompaniment really did add depth to each chapter because it did feel like you said, like an additional nugget for the person who's reading the chapter. And it felt like another insight into you as well. And one of the things too, is that we dropped the 
artist title when I published it with Future Tense before it would say who the songs were by. And so that's also another way where the playlist can show you actually which song I mean, if there's multiple songs or covers or renditions. And I like this idea too, right, that you can enjoy the playlist later or in addition to some mm-hmm. people do it while they're reading. But I'm thinking about, yeah, just ways that we can get reading to have another layer or another form of engagement and then having the bonus opportunity to then go through the text and pick out every single time a song or an artist was mentioned and add that to the playlist was also super fun to just add like a secondary level of listening and then also just fun hopefully for people who check it out. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned the Independent Resource Center for Publishing. Did I say that right? Independent Publishing <laughs> Resource Center. <laughs> okay. Um, what is that? And is that how you got your start with writing as a craft, as a profession? So the Independent Publishing Resource Center, uh, I think it was started in like the 90s, I think, or maybe. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. It's it's old. Um, I'm not sure how old it is, but maybe it's not quite that old. I was like, if it, if it was made in the 90s, was it old? Am I old? <laughs> I mean, old for, I guess, like an institution of like a nonprofit or or a DIY space to continue to exist. I think the 90s is, is old for something to continue to exist from. Yeah. Especially Portland as a city has changed a lot from the 90s. And people talk about, you know, the Portland like punk scene in the 90s. And it is a, a time capsule. But regardless of exactly when the IPRC started, it's a space that has moved a couple times in Portland, but at its core has always been a place that centers print modalities. So letterpress, screen printing, um, you know, later there also was a risograph and currently is a risograph machine. And in addition to print modalities and art bookmaking functions, there's also a strong culture of zine making that's been a part of the IPRC. And then over the years, it's expanded where they've done a lot of programming around creative writing, different programming also that centers BIPOC artists. And it's been really amazing, actually, to have moved here to Portland in 2009. And that was one of the first places that I would go to. And I didn't quite feel welcomed when I first came. I was a little intimidated by the space. But over the years, I've just seen them continue to grow with the community and really center BIPOC artists and evolve I think with the community and after I actually took that um, it was a nine-month program where I learned making modalities in addition to studying prose for about six months then a couple years later I actually then started to teach there and I taught the same program that I was in and I think it's also just like a testament of how small the community is but also how welcoming it is of cultivating not only just people who are visiting but hopefully then can be a part of the infrastructure at the IPRC and I don't teach there currently but it has been just really integral to my growth as a writer and as a instructor. I got my start with writing more as like a profession after I graduated from undergrad. I didn't really know that I could study writing or didn't even think it was a possible career path honestly until afterwards, I kind of was like, hey, I've always liked writing and I have no idea what I'm doing with my life now that I'm not going to be a full-time teacher. That's what I thought I was going to be doing. And so I took an internship, um, Bitch Media, RIP, oh. recently defunct. Oh, yeah. sad, but yeah. I basically learned how to go from academic writing to pop culture writing and, you know, writing for audiences and doing reviews. And it's totally different. Yeah. And over time, eventually I kind of was like, I want to try to do this more full time and started to do that. But 
the IPRC was very integral to me doing personal narrative and switching to more memoir style because that was something that I wasn't familiar with and really honestly gave me the kick to then apply to my MFA, which I'm in right now and I'm going to be graduating in June. But having had the opportunity to stick with something for nine months and be like, okay, this is something that I can do and that I'm still excited by. And then, you know, Funeral for Placa came out of it too. So it's been super important to me for sure as an author in my own right outside of cultural criticism and journalism. That's really awesome. So you live in Portland now, but you did grow up in Belmont, California. And I actually grew up in Pacifica, also in San Mateo County. (laughs) Yeah, so I actually really resonated with so much of what you wrote, specifically growing up in a predominantly white place and um, how that impacted your understanding of beauty as a child slash adolescent. So wanted to ask if you could share a bit more about what that was like revealing all of that in such a personal way. It's interesting. You're from Pacifica. One of my close friends, actually, that I'm, uh, I do some creative work with, Celeste Noche. She's also from Pacifica. So, oh my god. Um, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about like the Pacifica experience, and it sounds very similar to the Belmont experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's important for people who aren't from the area to know that like the Bay Area is known as being super diverse, and right. it is. But then there's these pockets that are not. Just like any area. I think become segregated over time or whatever. There are these pockets of super white suburbs and that is where I grew up. And my family, even just a couple of towns over in Redwood City, and that's where I was born. It was much more diverse in school. There was a lot more Latinos and Black students and um, a lot of Pacific Islanders. And in Belmont, I experienced that diversity by the time I got to high school, but it also was super self-segregated at that stage, mm-hmm. not only by class, but also by race. Like I, I mentioned in the book, actually, I kind of talk about that divide. It was really confusing as a Latina, a brown person, seen as brown in this very white space. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize for a long time how much I was inundated with beauty norms until I started mm-hmm. to think about, wow, yeah, I really did used to pray that I would wake up blonde and, mm. and blue eyes. And I was really sad. And it, it was hard to tap into those feelings. But as I started writing about my experiences growing up, there are a couple like key moments that I think about that were really, that really changed my life. And that's kind of how I started to write the essays because I didn't have a direction really for what I was doing. I kind of just started to be like, what what are my most prominent memories? That helped me, I think, with, like I'm saying, moving from journalism or cultural criticism to writing about my own life, because for a long time, I've been really uncomfortable with what it's like to try to write about things that we don't remember well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the text, you might notice that I say, I don't remember this, or my sister remembers this differently. And that has been the work that I've been doing through the MFA, especially to think about what is truth? What is not truth? What does it mean if we can't remember it? And do we actually remember? But at that time, I just went with like those hot spots. And for better or worse, it's a collection that is talking about a lot of traumas. Um, but because I remembered them more easily, they felt more comfortable to kind of dive into. And then having that comfort in feeling more self-assured with what the memory actually was, I think allowed me to tap into some of those emotions and It was really hard, but also I knew that growing up, I had some books that I liked sometimes, but the experience of being brown in white suburbs 
isn't a very predominant narrative still. And so that was kind of what motivated me where I was like, I know I'm not the only person who probably feels this way. And maybe this is going to be the first time that someone reads in a book that, hey, I've struggled with not only my identity, but also coming to love myself and love being brown. And here's mm-hmm. a time when I didn't. Not that everyone has to follow that arc necessarily, but I think it's- Well, it'd be good. It's better not to stay in the self-hatred portion of life. Yeah, I hope so, right? I hope so. Maybe then, you know, these conversations can be hopefully a part of that. Especially families can also be a part of giving USA messaging, right? There's like a lot of colorism and Latinx community. Mm -hmm. And not only was I experienced some of that in school, I was also replicated at home in a lot of ways too. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated you talking about the experience growing up as a Latina in a white suburb because your book was the first time that I had ever encountered that reflected. And I really saw myself in so much of what you wrote. And like you said, it it really does impact your identity formation and ultimately your ability to appreciate yourself and your culture and your history. One of the things that I remember my little brother and I were talking about the experience of growing up as Latinxes in Pacifica. And some people might look at him and say that he's white passing, but still like we were otherized. He was otherized because in a place that is that white, there is like line drawing that occurs that maybe wouldn't happen other places. Like maybe in Arizona, for example, maybe he would just be red as white, but there he wasn't. And it was very explicit that we were an immigrant family. And he told me that when he was younger, he thought that being white meant that you were rich and had nice things. Hmm. And that he would also pray that he would be white. You know, I just think that that experience is kind of fundamentally different to the experiences that my friends that I met in college who lived in East LA, for example, would talk about. Because there was also issues of class. And one of my friends who grew up in East LA was like, yeah, you know, I never really associated Latinxes with certain working class jobs because in East LA, everybody's Latinx, including the professionals, including teachers. <laughs> so yeah, there's nuance to the experiences of Latinxes and where they grow up geographically. And I really appreciated how raw you shared your stories. I'm interested in what you were discussing about memory. Mm -hmm. How did you come to feel comfortable being an authority on your experience? Because like you said, people remember things differently. You know, what is truth in that context? And then at the same time, like, this is your life. This is your experience. And you do have every right to write it as it happened to you. So how did you find comfort? and find the authority to do that. Yeah, thanks so much for for sharing, first of all, kind of about that internalized, I think what you're getting at is like this internalized view of race also that can Mm -hmm. happen, right? I think also a conversation I had with my therapist a while ago about being bi actually was that I was looking at things in a very straight lens. Mm. It's kind of like you're, you're surrounded by a lot of like hetero narratives and that is impacting your ability to understand the spectrum of queerness, even though you're queer. And I I hear that also in what you're saying about like, when we grow up with stereotypes, our community reinforces those even about our own Mm -hmm. communities. And we don't have an opportunity to question that until 
maybe we actively try to question that. Yeah. That really resonates with me. So thank you for sharing. As far as being an authority, what gave me comfort in being able to write was that I just kept telling myself that no one was going to read it. <laughs> like I said, I wrote this initially as a class project and I, I actually just DIY pressed a bunch of peanut for flacas are about half as long. I like cut the paper myself, learned how to, you know, bind it. And oh wow. Wait, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um I can I can send you a picture, but um the original version is just like construction paper. <laughs> and oh my god, that's amazing. So when I made that, I made an edition of 150, which still felt like a lot to me, but I was kind of could keep tabs on where it was going. And when the opportunity came to publish with Future Tense, I like at the small press, it's not like I'm publishing with a big five. I didn't know a lot about the publishing industry and just kind of figured maybe like a few hundred more people would read it, max. But it took off more than I expected. <laughs> and then you won awards. <laughs> Which has been amazing. And also with that, I've had to navigate the implications of writing my story. And I don't consider myself an authority on everything that has happened in my life. But I think where it gets tricky is that I can write about my story as much as I want, but my life intersects with other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so it's up to me to figure out where I'm comfortable and also the relationships that I have with people. Thinking about how I write about things may or may not impact our relationship. Mm-hmm. And when Especially I think with about family, because you wrote about so much about your family. Yeah. And that's the part where I didn't anticipate some of the things that people would have questions about. You know, it's kind of some of the things I thought people mm-hmm. would be upset about, they weren't. And more so the things that people were upset about were things that I didn't anticipate. But honestly, the book did what it was supposed to and that it has opened up opportunities for conversations that I think otherwise wouldn't have occurred. Mm. And it really was a lot of me listening and being open to hearing, you know, people's perspectives while also explaining my own perspective and approach. But talking to people who, you know, don't know what memoir is, who don't understand Mm -hmm. necessarily the different narrative lens that someone has or how me as a narrator is different from me as a person or the person Mm -hmm. on the page is different from the person in my real life. So I've had to have conversations where I'm like, I know our our relationship is so rich and much greater than this sentence where I mention you. And for the purpose of this essay, there's not a lot of room to dive into other aspects of a relationship. Is it more about that, about how you as a narrator is different than you as a person? What does that mean? Yeah. So especially with my book, actually, I think this is a, it's easier for me to talk about this collection versus maybe other examples because my book starts off with a narrative voice that is younger, right? It's sort of me from the perspective of when I'm five-ish and I chose to use words that were a little more useful, that might've been more close to what I would think at that time. And I wanted to write the narrative from my vantage point or my perspective at those different ages. And so when I write about my depression when I'm 13, I'm writing about it from as much as I can imagine what it was like to be myself at that age. And some of that I have like diary entries that I can consult or like moody poems that I wrote, but it's all a recreation. Like nothing is a hundred percent fact. Yeah. It's not like a historian's document. Not a historical record. Yeah, yeah. It is my interpretation and also my creative imagination of how to recreate some of these moments or 
how to organize them into a coherent essay. But how I think currently, or even when I was writing, isn't necessarily how I feel when I'm writing the perspective of myself in those essays. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> yeah. So like, you're trying to capture yourself as you're five, but now you're older. So obviously you're going to be different. <laughs> so if when I'm five, I'm like, I don't know why my dad doesn't love me. Yeah. That might be a different perspective than me as an adult. That's like, well, it's it's complicated. And like, we can get lofty about what love is or isn't and how it shows mm-hmm. up in relationships. But me as a narrator in that moment, I'm just trying to capture young version of me. Or me, mm-hmm. I describe someone as like a rich person is maybe me in that moment sort of being flippant because that's like 13 year old me would just be quick to maybe categorize and like not dive into something. So yeah, I had to do a lot of explaining. And with my next book that I'm working on, I think I'm going to anonymize a lot more people and Mm. names because some of it was, I think, unnecessary for me to use names, honestly. Um, Can you give an example? Well, I don't want to name anyone specifically, but I just think there were moments when I divulged things that I didn't necessarily need to by the person's name. Mm. And I don't think that that's not truthful. And a lot of memoirs do that where they, you know, hide people's names for their own privacy and protection, too, because as a writer, I am choosing to put my work out there and subject myself in some ways to less privacy, right? Yeah. Especially in the media age, especially with the internet, right? There is a level of consent that I'm giving and maybe I don't always want to implicate other people or maybe I can have that conversation with them to ask them before, you know, and I did that too with some people in my book. I asked them, hey, can you read this section or what do you think about this? Especially my mom, Mm -hmm. because that's someone who like, no matter what, I can try to be as anonymous, but my mom's my mom and that's easy to figure out. And maybe with really small characters, quote unquote, actual people, right, that come into the narrative, maybe I don't actually need to insert them if it's not necessarily a crucial part of the story. Yeah. And you discuss going from journalism slash pop critique to memoir. And I feel like that was likely one of the things that you had to unlearn because as a journalist, you're trying to get every single thing correct. And it's like every journalist's worst fear to have a correction underneath their byline. As you were talking, I was like, oh, you know, that's true. Because for example, the kids who were like, she can't like him because she's going to date somebody black. Those people were probably like not so happy to be to be outed or their childhood racism. I guess it's like you can convey the point without outing them. I mean, I think it's okay to out them, but <laughs> I understand I feel like that's very compassionate and empathetic of you to be thinking about ways to minimize that in your second book. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate it. That's an example of maybe people who I'm no longer in relationship with, but there's also, you know, family members, who mm, you know? Okay. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to have another conversation about how I wrote certain things. But I think at the end of the day, those conversations were really good because instead of allowing a similar cycle of my family to play out, which is like, oh, this person's upset. They're going to talk to this person. This person, this person. I'm just going to call them. We're going to have a conversation. I'll reiterate. I love them and care about them and explain as much as I can about my perspective and try to be empathetic. And at the end of the day, we might still disagree on what was the right thing or wrong thing. Yeah, I think it was eye-opening also to just see like what wounds are still really fresh and what hasn't even fully processed. At the same time, trying to know that I, I did what I set out to do, which was to try to write 
my story from my perspective. And there are moments where I had to be like, yeah, you don't remember that because maybe that wasn't a big moment for you, but for me it was. And I don't know what to tell you besides I remember it. I think it was your first chapter where you talked about the show and tell and how your dad didn't show up. And that I could totally see being something that maybe he doesn't even remember, but for you, it was like the scarring memory. And I just want to commend you for how you wrote that chapter because it broke my heart. (laughs) And I feel like it broke the hearts of anybody who's been disappointed by a parental figure. You captured that feeling of being a kid and these people who you idolize because they're your literal caretakers disappointing you and the internal struggle where you're like trying to defend them still. I just appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate too that you're able to see, you know, I think you summarized it well, but that's part of what I tried to do by immersing the reader in those different memories is how did I see it at that time? Because that, that piece to me won't be the same if I tell you oh yeah, you know, maybe his schedule was busy or, or like right. defend him or the purpose of that was to honor my voice and my experience at that time. And it was hurt. And I don't know that I would necessarily write the collection in the exact same way now, but I think that I wrote the collection with the skills that I had. And I think I got across as much as I could those points of immersion, even if I didn't necessarily explain it in the way that it was written, but kind of just like presented it to the reader. But I really value as a reader, books were able to follow along on the journey too of discovery mm-hmm. and uncovering yeah. collection as opposed to hearing from the writer at the desk or the present writer being like, oh, and like this is how I think about it now. Sometimes I think memoirs can do that a little too much where it takes me so out of like those moments. And I think also it's more comfortable often to skip to the reflection and the healed perspective. But as a reader, I think mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to join the person on that journey. Yeah, I think especially for children, because children in our society are so often dismissed. You know, I think we society don't actually treat children well. We don't treat them as full humans. You know, I've experienced this with childhood trauma, like, and trying to address it with parents and being dismissed or like, oh, that's not how that happened or okay, yeah, but X, Y, and Z is why that happened. And so you need to get over it. I really appreciate that you honored the experience of you as a child up to being an adolescent because society does not honor that and doesn't take children's emotions seriously. Like you said, it's just so easy to be like, yeah, that happened as a kid, but now I'm in therapy and I'm over it. But it's like, what can we learn when we sit with that hurt? I think that's what your book teaches us. Thank you. Yeah. And I've given a couple of talks at high schools, especially, um, in some middle schools where I read excerpts of those particular chapters, it's really powerful to see how much those thoughts resonate with the kids because I was honestly shocked when I was looking back at some of these diary entries and poetry Mm. to see how much actual pain there was. I know I experienced a lot of pain. I knew I was diagnosed with depression, but it was really different to see completely raw, unedited journal entries in that headspace. And I think it's really easy to forget how real kids feel and how much they feel and how deeply they feel and on top of that if they have not learned emotional regulation or how to even express their feelings or that even their feelings are okay which was a lot of my experience growing up those feelings are extremely heavy to to bear alone hopefully if someone can read my book whether they're an adult reflecting back on some of that childhood trauma or current 
kids with like guidance and reading it because definitely it gets a little, I think, heavy in adult content, even though unfortunately some kids experience traumas of, you know, quote unquote adult level mm -hmm. at all ages. Mm -hmm. I hope that that can more than anything just be a reflection back like this is normal, um, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. discuss being aware as a child of how much, quote, growing boys are expected to eat and what is considered acceptable for a little girl to eat. And it really shed light on how fatphobic our society is and how these ideologies are learned quite young, because you were discussing that in elementary school. How were you able to remember these moments of learning gendered body standards when they do happen so casually and so frequently? I think it was that immersion work like I'm mentioning, right? It starts with a memory of something that's really vivid. And then I tried to just think more of like, okay, well, what happened before this? What happened after this? Oh, there's this person that I'm mentioning. What was our friendship like? What are memories of our friendship? And these little glimpses started coming back. And I think as I'm in the writing stage, what my writing process looks like often, especially essay form as opposed to a more traditional narrative memoir that I'm doing now, is that it really started with a memory or a feeling and not knowing where it was going to go. And so the process is jotting down and sort of following all these random threads as they come to me, as they come to me, and then maybe going back and trying to flush them out and just sitting with a long time, just creating, creating, creating. And like this big blob of all these like tiny memories and maybe it's a sentence or two or even just a paragraph that maybe isn't going to end up in what starts to form. But I think allowing that really open, almost meditative, like following the thoughts allows for you to remember hopefully more if you're someone who wants mm -hmm. to write about these things or maybe even just reflect mm -hmm. on them. And it makes me wonder sometimes how much I would actually remember if I didn't sit down and write and how easy it is to just move forward and to not reflect back on that. And this definitely isn't work everyone needs to do. It's something that I'm drawn to, but yeah, I spent a lot of time in the past and thinking about things and trying to write them and then reading a new piece of, you know, a journal entry and having that reshape how I think about things. And I think that's also why I've talked about the work that I'm doing in my MFA to think a lot about what is memory and it's malleable. And that malleability is what I'm also seeing is why it's possible as someone who has a diagnosis of CPTSD, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder which is considered a memory disorder, to actually be able to heal those frayed memory connections. And as much as it's kind of stressful to be like, I am seen as the authority and there is there is a level of being an authority because once something's published, that is a privilege that people who maybe have been in your life who don't have the opportunity to say what their story is and have it circulated around the world or US or whatever, that is a privilege and a, and a level of being sort of seen as an authority to an extent. And so I think that's also why it's important to have these conversations about how how great it can be. Not that I am trying to outright lie. That's not my intention no. ever. But it's really hard to draw lines. We want to draw lines a lot. It's not easy because they don't always exist. And I think that's a lot too of therapy is like nuance, right? You mentioned it earlier. It's like mm -hmm. everything's really complex. And I'm just doing my best to try to write these things and these memories and unpack what I know now and apply that to my experience, at least in the situation that you mentioned, right? Of like, what are the messages that I received in childhood and how do I then connect that to the overall theme of that particular essay? 
yeah later that's the after after I've dove back into the the depths of memory yeah we all have our own perspective and each person's memory is fallible and even in that present moment how you interpret something or process something it's different on an individual level so I personally think it's a miracle that humans are able to talk to each other at all (laughs) I just feel like we're all having our own like individual experiences yeah I commend you for your bravery in still writing and still drawing your lines as best you can remember them because even though there is no objective reality your perspective is still valid and is important to learn from thank you and I guess the second part of the question that you also asked is sometimes I also am trying to specifically think about the themes or the threads and so in knowing that my collection was going to be called Funeral for Flaca. When I had the opportunity to revise and expand it for the version with Future Tense books, that is now the version that most people have, I also had the opportunity to actually go back and see where the gaps were in trying to connect those things throughout the collection. Because a lot of times we try to maybe have like, this is the essay about this singular topic, and this is the essay about this singular topic. But what I was trying to also illustrate is that it's all mixed up and jumbled and connected and tiny little moments of the same threads are happening throughout someone's life often. Not with everything, but especially with something like how we view people's bodies and what messages we receive about diet culture and what girls versus boys and you know men are allowed to look like, what is attractive, right? That's tied also into this Western Eurocentric beauty ideals and it's all in there mixed with family right it's not one singular Mm -hmm. place where we're getting those messages yeah definitely in Tragos Amargos you talk about visiting Aguilia a place where you saw other little brown girls like you a place before you became quote entangled in the complexity of what it means to be Chicana split in two or to be your daughter split in many In what ways did you feel split in many? There's this little sliver of my childhood in Aelia specifically, where I was like, this is home. This is comfortable. I feel like I blend in. And it was like very picturesque. And then as time went on, even the sense of blending in and feeling at home there became more complicated because I realized like, yeah, I am a U.S. citizen and my experience Mm -hmm. of just visiting my dad's hometown isn't actually the same as the people that I thought were, you know, the quote unquote, same as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one example of just this memory, right? Starts to split or am I, my sense of where I belong or fit in starts mm-hmm. to split. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this picturesque memory of being in Ayudia and that essay I talk about too, this more than a month that I would go down there. And this one time I was there with my dad for over a month and then that memory and my relationship splits when I think about that was the longest time I've ever spent with him mm. since my parents split up. And that's probably the longest I'll ever be with him for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so when I say split in many, often that comes with, I think, reflection, but also just growing up and starting to see different sides of things. And definitely like growing up in the suburbs, I felt split in many because I was trying to figure out what box do I fit in, but none of these boxes fit and I can only pick one. And like, what is the box that is going to hold me in? And I can't, I can't. So, yeah. Uh, maybe that's where the 
queer side of me gets tucked away because I don't even want to see that mm. or mm. the side where I want to be chola and punk and indie and whatever tries to morph into one thing I mean picking one of those things instead of encompassing all those things right right split as the the opposite of I don't know being whole and coherent yeah 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 I really loved when you talked about being in high school and kind of trying on these different archetypes that were available to you, but that didn't quite fit because of essentialized ideas of what it means to be Latina. I'm sure that when you visit high schools, that is what resonates with the kids a lot. Often they're like, well, which one are you now? Are you Chola? (laughs) Which one's your favorite? A lot of the Chola girls go, which one are you? Do you like Chola the best though? And I'm like, yeah, probably, but (laughs) no. (laughs) But they still want me to pick like, well, which one do you think like is the most you? And I think that's, you know, maybe um, that's also because it's really hard to see that you can be multiple things when you're in a place where that isn't really allowed. And yeah, hopefully me coming in there and being like, I'm all the things. They'll believe it or they'll be like, no, she's none of those things because she's she doesn't look punk. She doesn't look chola anymore. (laughs) No, you're definitely disrupting. And I love that. So the question that I like to end with this season is what is something that has been inspiring you lately? Oh, okay. Let me think. I'm like so bad at thinking of on the spot, like when people ask me what, you know, what I've been reading or, um, but it's really anything, you know, like you could say that the clouds in the sky have been inspiring you if that's what's been inspiring you. Um, okay. What's been inspiring me right now a little bit, not to be totally self-absorbed but I'm taking a sabbatical in January and I'm really really excited about having time to rest and I'm going to actually be writing a lot and actually also thinking about like long-term business things for myself as a multi-hyphenate and so what I also anticipate I'll be very inspired by because I'm saving it for that time is the nap ministry yes Um, so I'm just excited by the idea of rest and like taking care of myself and figuring out how to set boundaries through all of this, which, you know, this, including writing, school, therapy, like all of the many things that I'm dealing with. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are dealing with constantly. I'm inspired by figuring out how to make things feel sustainable and practicing boundaries. Wow. I love that. I need that. I'm a, I'm inspired by your inspiration. <laughs> I, I'm excited too. I haven't done an extended break like this um, in a long time. And the more that I've been kind of diving in and nerding out, figuring out how to do it besides mm-hmm. saving up some money so I can live during that time. I'm seeing there's a lot of different versions of it. And some people do it every five years or, you know, for a whole year. And I don't know that mm-hmm. I necessarily want that or need that, but I'm excited by what this also can mean if I make it a part of my life. And that's one of the things that is nice about being self-employed again, even though it's been really hard sometimes, but is the ability yeah. to be like, I'm going to take this time off and yes. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure it out and tell you that I can't work for you these five weeks. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I love it. Super amazing. Emily, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing time with me. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk for your wonderful questions and the opportunity to share a little bit more about my book. 
Well, Cachibanas, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. Patrons got first access to this interview last year. So if you wish that you had had this interview last year when it was fresh off the audio mic, (laughs) then you should become a patron. It's the best way to support the podcast. I feel like I've said this a few times, but I kind of want to reiterate it because I am a one-woman show. Fuerte Arizona is gracious enough to provide audio editing, but I am the sole host and producer, and it it's honestly a full-time job. And the only way that I'm able to make this sustainable for me and honestly just break even, I'm not even making a profit off of this podcast. It really is a labor of love. And breaking even is kind of the baseline of where I need to be. So if you want to continue hearing these episodes, please, please, please consider becoming a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can support the podcast. And seriously, every single patron is my virtual best friend. Also, continuing this spirit, thank you so much to Nancy, who is the newest Radio Cachimbona patron. You seriously are are the only reason why Radio Cachimbona continues to exist. So thank you. And I know that times are hard economically, so you might not be able to sign up for a monthly subscription right now, but if you do still want to support the podcast and help keep it going, the best way to do so is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps me get new listeners and helps me promote visibility for the podcast. There have been no new reviews since the last episode that I released, so again, I'm just going to cry myself to sleep tonight. Thanks, guys. Um, So yeah, now that I've peer pressured you into leaving a rating and review, the final way to support and just to continue these conversations that I'm having on the podcast, right? Because I want to broaden the conversations. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas.